Hi, I'm Campbell. And this is Get With The Programme, the podcast for people who just love TV. If you want TV in your ears, this it is happening for you right now. You are getting to listen to that TV. In a, ba- in a way, you're in a situation where you can't look at a thing. You might be on a train or on a bus. You might be at the gym. Where do people listen to podcasts? Uh, walking. Walking. In the streets, in the yeah. car. Yeah. Um, if you're any of those places, hopefully this is an hour of something very good and TV friendly to enjoy. Um, before we get to our guest for this week, this is just a quick reminder that applications are open for our two talent schemes that we run as part of the Edinburgh TV Festival. Uh, the Network, which is our free entry level scheme for people who are just knocking on the door of TV and want to get in. And uh, Ones to Watch, which is our more senior scheme, um, which is for people who are already in the world of TV but want to get that little bit further. Um, so there's information about both those schemes, the application process, the things we look for and what you actually get by being a part of them um, on our websites which uh, you can find at www.tvtalentschemes.co.uk and the deadline for both of those is April 27th so you've still got a little bit of time to have a think, prep your application and get ready to hit send. So moving from knocking on a door to get to the other side and then there maybe being another door on another side, that puts me in the mind of the Crystal Maze, <laughs> which is relevant to this week's guest, uh, Neil Simpson, who in a way has one of the best job titles in television. He's the creative director at Fizz. And he's not the creative director of Fizz. You know, if you have had like a Coke recently or a Fanta, he's not creatively directed the stuff at the top of the glass. He's creative director of his TV, which um, is a fantastic uh, part of the RDF group. And Neil is good fun. My only regret with this podcast is that I did not arrange for a piano to be there. Because Neil would have made great use of it. Neil is a, a triple threat. I don't know what the three... Th- the, he, can, he, can, he, can, he can sing. I think he can probably dance. He's yeah, very he's, funny. He's light on his feet. He's a quadruple threat as well, because also he's, he's an amazing television executive. So that's four things. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. Um, and uh, it's just a great person to spend an hour with. So hopefully you can vicariously enjoy that over the next hour where we talk about Crystal Maze, but we also talk about how Neil got into television, um, which is a really interesting uh, story and hopefully lots of things there for people to learn and pick up on. Uh, welcome, Neil. Thanks for joining us. Hello. I hope you're as excited as me to talk, just to talk about television and what you love about it and, and how you got into it. Um, I'm ready. Are you ready, Neil? I think so. We've both had... Uh, it's, we are currently doing espressos. Audio only. We've yeah. both had two double espressos, so this is going to be on... We're going to be on fire. We're going to fly by. Well, let's fly back in time, Neil, to the, to the beginning. <laughs> well, the beginning of time, but to when you were growing up. Can you remember what television was like for you as, as a child? Is it something you watched a lot? Did you watch it with your family? So, um, my parents were in the army, so I moved around a lot when I was growing up and spent a bit of time in a military base in Germany, which was fun. Um, so we had like limited UK shows when I was in... So like British Forces six, Broadcasting? Seven, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and I can remember... Um, Johnny Ball think of a number yeah and I can really remember my favourite show was Tony Hart Heartbeat yeah with the gallery and Morph Morph of course um, and Blue Peter 
and really engaging with those shows where it felt sort of really educational and sort of stimulating and you were learning stuff um, and they were just great each companions like when I was growing up like people like Johnny Ball and Tony Hart were just mesmeric like yeah just very them. calming yeah presences and both of them have those sort of voices and they do catch you at that age where you are genuinely curious and certainly with Johnny Ball I remember he asked the sorts of science and maths questions that you as a child would want to ask you know like how many elephants does it take to do x y or z and I think yeah those things still exist obviously but and then He-Man right yes so I was I loved He-Man and those cartoons with the moral message at the end of it delivered by He-Man or Man at Arms to camera even though it's not camera yeah straight straight down the lens like today kids we've learned we've learned about you know don't trust Skeletor and and lying in general Um, so the thing was that I I had such fond memories of He-Man and um, obviously we've now got Netflix and my son's nine years old and so I said to him they've just put He-Man on Netflix let's watch He-Man and I mean, it's one of those things which uh, we'll probably come to later on when we think about bringing shows back and the way that we remember things so fondly. The quality of He-Man... Of the animation is quite poor. I mean, it's not just the quality of the animation, the amount of animation. So the thing that was so interesting about it was they clearly had a very limited number of animated sequences and then they'd sort of draw characters over it or put the animation on different backgrounds. So you'd have He-Man running from left to right and then in the next shot they've just turned it the other way around and then he's running from right to left and then they'd have different characters doing exactly the same moves where they've just painted over the new character but just and then the kit of parts was almost identical in the next episode and you realise that they'd done so there was so little the quality of this show was so low and yet we were satisfied with that and then you see what you've got to deliver now, like Nexo, does it, and does it Lego Ninjago, yes. like amazing animation with incredible storyboards. Like we're watching Iron Man together at the moment, the animated adventures, and there's self-contained narratives in every episode with a narrative <laughs> arc across two seasons of like forty episodes that's weaving in and out with the character development. So that kind of sophistication you'd expect from a drama. It's incredible. Right? And then you go back and look at He-Man and I'm going, I'm really sorry, Ennis, this was a bomb steer from Dad. Let's yeah. never talk of this again. Because I've had a similar experience with, with my daughter and She-Ra, because I think that is... Um, and, same and, same and, universe. And a bit of He-Man, same universe. Interesting how they introduced the character She-Ra in the first one. But also I sort of noticed like, how cheap the animation was. But also just how old-fashioned it was in a way. But the way... When you listen to all the voice actors now, you're like, oh, those guys are clearly in their 50s and 60s. And it's got a real kind of 60s sort of feel to it, and like a bit like the original kind of Batman series. But I was surprised at how trad it came across. But also, what a logistical feat to kind of work out how cheaply can you make a cartoon by just really getting it down to like, what can we reuse and what can we sort of flip over. And so... I love that we spend the first, what, 30 minutes of this podcast deconstructing He-Man and She-Ra. Why not? I always remember that was the first time I became aware of people moaning, or at least like parents moaning, they're just toy adverts. I always remember that being like a thing that people would say against it. Oh, what are you watching that for? It's just a half hour advert for toys. So you mentioned 
Johnny Ball and uh, Blue Peter and, and shows like that. Did you have a sense of, at that age, oh, the, these are these are programmes that are being made? Did you have a sense of how those things are made? Did you, is it something you even thought about at that age? Growing up where I did, and it's sort of, it, Lo- London and television felt like a million miles away. I mean, when I was growing up, I think I came to London twice, and it was just this incredible, big, scary, terrifying adventure on both days, and then back to my Midlands life because we got settled in Leicester and never would have imagined I'd end up working in TV and had no connection or understanding of it at all but I was very much driven by the arts and um, performance and theatre and all that kind of stuff growing up so that was where I was originally planning going. Did you study those things? I mean tragically yeah. Yes yeah all the way to the end? Uh, Yeah Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. Yeah, theatre, God. So, so did you do theatre studies or did you do drama? I did, uh, it was it was theatre studies at A-level, it was one of my L's. I did economics and English as well, so I wasn't yeah. just, you know... I did economics and English, subjects. solid choices. Yeah, thanks. So, um, and then I did uh, theatre studies and English at the University of Birmingham. And I got really into, when I got on the... When, when I was at um, Birmingham Uni, they, they had a, a radio station, Burn FM... Nice. Birmingham University Radio Network. Love it. Yeah, and um, the Guild TV channel. Yes, a very, um, a very well-respected student TV station. And uh, Red Brick was the the newspaper, and I got really involved in Guild TV and uh, Burn FM, and also ended up running our comedy club. So we had a comedy club that would uh, was on every like two weeks, uh, part of the Comedy Network, and um, so I ended up sort of hosting that. Comparing so nice. yeah. and so would you would you book the the other comedians as well? Or would they all be student comedians too? Or so we were part of this thing called the Comedy Network, which was um, it was run by Avalon, and they they had this sort of network of tours. So you bought into they would book the acts, and, and so we were having like Ross Noble and Peter Kay and That's Dave great. Gorman, like but, but way before yeah. they were famous. So nobody kind of ever appreciated at the time that they'd just seen the acts that were going to be yeah. huge. So that was like the, the uni experience really opened my eyes up to media and producing content. And the thing I loved most was the radio. Actually, was doing the, the radio show. And then, so this is slightly tragic. So I had my own show on the Saturday, and um, which is three hours. Uh, and every show, I'd get like a couple of phone calls from different ladies. Okay. And, um, I was used to come off air thinking, yeah, you know, I've got like this little fan base of ladies. And my best friend at university was, um, ended up being my wife, like Claire. And I then discovered at the end of university that she'd just been putting voices on. She was the only one calling just for a bit of a laugh with her mates because of how cocky I'd be when I finished the show. No one else was calling. Wow. What kind of variety of voices was she deploying? She's very good with regional yeah. accents. So it's kind of, you, you felt like not only. I've got a big female fan base, but like I've got I've got regional appeal. It's not just uh, not just locally, but yeah, everyone, I, I, everyone's was, I felt it. like I was catering to the nations and regions, but it turned out I was catering to somebody who was using me as a practical joke. How about that? I, I had a student radio show as well. I did not did have any callers in. I had a really bad slot. Um, I love the fact that you blamed the slot. That's no, no, something no, that we've taken forward. I, I had a really bad slot. I mean, it wasn't a bad slot. Actually, I think I was quite happy with the slot because I think I sort of wanted to do it, but also was quite scared at the notion of actually anyone 
hearing me. It's quite like a weird what wallpaper this, issue what, with it. What was the slot? Um, I'm trying to think. I think it was something like sort of nine till midnight on like a Tuesday or a Thursday. It's not like it's 2am. No, it's true. But I think that's quite peak people being down the pub drinking cheap. Did you, what kind of like, what kind of broadcast right because we had an FM license but we could only have it for like two weeks we like had twice a year it was week. something like I remember there were lots of really weird legal things that we had to do and I remember one thing that always stuck with me was we had to record every broadcast and I think it could be picked up beyond um, like the campus because I went to like campus university went to Kiel come out of nowhere and they had all these really weird rules about you had to tape everything that you were, you were doing and they worked out the cheapest way to do that because after all, tapes are quite expensive. They had a knackered old video recorder that could only record sound and they used to put VHS tapes in it and record it at super long play. So essentially, like a, a three-hour videotape could record like 12 hours of audio. So that, but I just felt if ever they wanted to check like the audio archive, it was just a bunch of VHS tapes that just had sound on them. Amazing. I don't know whoever would have evaluated those. But, um, so what was yeah. your kind of... What was your USP of your show? There what wasn't kind of really. There wasn't know? really. I mean, it was for me. I think it was a lot of like soul and jazz, and, <laughs> oh, and I think and I think that's how because that's that's the music I like. And I think also like no one was really covering that. So I think when they were sort of divvying it up, I was like, oh, I'd love to do a show like this, and like, well, no one else doing that kind of music, so you can have that. And that's that was that was quite exciting. I remember going back and like telling my friends about it, and this says a lot about the state of radio at the time, they were really keen to like, like oh, we'd all love to be on the show and we'll do like, we'll do like characters, we'll be like a posse. And I was like, no, thank you. But in, in retrospect, that might have been more fun. But now that I think about it, that would have been slightly more embarrassing if tapes of that surfaced. Whereas I think if any tape did surface, it would just be me being very serious, going, here's some Miles Davis. It would, I don't think it was as dynamic as yours. I don't think, I don't think we had any callers in. I don't think anyone could call me. But anyway, it's not about me and my radio career. It's about you. So you obviously realised, right, I'm sort of essentially sort of producing comedy and putting things together and being involved in that world, doing your own radio show. At this point, are you starting to think, well, this, rather than what I'm studying as a degree, this, this is what I want to do when I leave here. And this idea of how, where do you go afterwards and what's so terrifying about that gap from uni to the real world is you've been in this kind of environment where you have to deliver coursework and these set time for tables and then suddenly the whole world is your oyster. People have got a clue who to contact yeah. or what to do. Or when no one's chasing do. you up as yeah. such. No there are no interested. deadlines for life. Yeah, no one owes you anything. Yeah. Um, which is scary. So uh, I, I guess I, I realised about halfway through my degree that I definitely didn't want to go into acting or theatre. And I, I really liked populism of being part of the radio and the, the TV and the comedy and entertaining people. Yeah, so in my final year, I'd contacted Avalon because they were obviously booking the, the comedy nights that I was looking after and they obviously had a huge presence in uh, Edinburgh um, at the festival in the Fringe. Yeah. So they had summer jobs as leafleters for um, the, all the live gigs. So I went up and did a, a all, all of August on my feet for like 12 hours handing out leaflets in the street. I did that for a month and it was amazing. It was hard work and just so exciting and, and fun and vibrant and meeting all these amazing people. And it felt very sort of rock and roll because the comedy thing was just sort of becoming the new rock yeah. and roll. You know, Newman and Badil had not that long before, you know, sold out Wembley and, and comedy was becoming a new sort of thing. And there was like uh, 
Noel Fielding and Julian Barrett and just launched Mighty Boosh and Al Murray and so these amazing acts and comedy and uh, entertainment was clearly sort of where I was sort of most interested and stimulated and I, I stayed up in Birmingham after I graduated and did some work at uh, BBC Pebble Mill so while I was there I wrote to I wrote to Avalon and said like have you got any opportunities and um, I ended up going down to London, coming down to London, that was my big move down to London, was to go and join their live department, looking after the comedy network, getting involved in the promotion and producing the Edinburgh festival stuff and then London tours and various other things. It was this fantastic introduction to... Yeah. And as you like, say, like, a great time as well, yeah. like the kind of acts you must have been working with then. So I did that for a year and a bit and then uh, went to work and met some people who had set up a sort of comedy and theatre tiny startup that was one of those situations where we were selling out runs we were doing tours that were doing really well we were winning awards for the stuff in Edinburgh and no one was making any money they've got this incredible <laughs> business model which was we only work with young undiscovered talent that needs a break right and we don't lock them into any management deals so the moment that so like they, the factory records of, uh, of comedy in a way. basically the moment they break someone else is going to swoop in and, and, and like, you coach get, them yeah, and, you, and then you never get any of the long tail of the investment that you put so you're running a charity yeah, pretty much and we were the charity case uh, and it was just it was this glorious naive optimistic thing where yeah. we were working really hard producing work that we're really proud of um, <laughs> and, and like running a, a deficit and my uh, girlfriend at the time who's now my wife and um, she met her at university and she was uh, a journalist and she just bought her own place and I couldn't afford to move in with her um, and I kind of realised that my job was not actually able to sustain my life yeah. so maybe it's time for a bit of a change and so what happened to sort of preempt the conversation of how did I get into television um, my favourite show on TV at the time was so Greg Norton and um, I remember they put an advert Media Guardian, and um, because they were crewing up to go five nights a week, and I wrote a ridiculous letter to them um, that was, I mean, it's one of those things where if these debates afterwards, do you do you write witty, silly, flippant letters, or do you write like a straight letter? And I wrote a ridiculous letter which just seemed to chime with their sensibilities. Yeah. And they called me up and asked me to go and meet them, and I met with Graham Stewart. And um, the, one of the day producers, Amanda Sangorski, and I just had such a giggle, and they were amazing. And they offered me a job, and yeah. I was there for about a year and a half, and that was my first uh, gig in TV, was working on V. Graham Norton, who sort of was five nights a week, it was just the best. It was a very sort of mad, dysfunctional, funny... See if you pound stuff. Yeah, because it was like, you know, five, day, five yeah. days it was on air. Like it's and we had three teams, so we were on this kind of rotation system. So um, you were responsible for a show every three days. And you got obviously all the acts coming in, and some are dropping out last minute, and it was items with the audience and the show. It was just, it was such a fantastic sort of thrown in at the deep end introduction to TV. That's great. And I think that's interesting you mentioned about the letter thing. So I think that's something that sort of is quite common when you're talking about that, that first opportunity is like I think there's a lot to be said for the cheeky genuine letter that's, that at least reflects you 
I think writing sort of a madcap letter, if that's not really what you're all about, is probably not a great move. But it's being memorable, isn't it? It's about getting noticed, because I imagine they would have got millions of letters, as you say, the kind of straight letters that say, like, I'm a diligent, this, that, and the other. But I think if you were able, they clearly saw something in that letter, which sounds like it was borne out when you, when you met them, that you, that you could work together and that you sort of saw things the same way. Well, I think I'd probably be doing this podcast a disservice if I skipped the bit that was... When I was working, it was called Fat Bloke Productions, where we were. And so when Claire had bought this flat and I couldn't afford to pay my half of the mortgage to sort of move in with her, so yeah. she thought she got a lodger instead. And that was the point at which I was thinking, this, this woman is definitely the woman I want to spend the rest of my life with. Yeah. And I can't afford to move sounds like the beginning of a sitcom premise in a good way and and, and so the, the hours I was working doing because it was like day and night working on the shows in the evening and, and obviously in the office during the day I just knew I was never going to get out so I quit with nothing to go to I mean I was broke so I joined a temping agency and I gave myself a month to try and get into TV at that point I kind of decided that's yeah. kind of where I wanted to go um, because I've done the sort of comedy and live theatre for by then about three years and I loved it but I'd learned enough to know that I mean so few people were making like, a, a living out of it and yeah. it's hand to mouth and I, I love TV um, I loved, that was what I loved watching and I loved the idea of being involved in stuff that was entertaining millions of people not like yeah. 20 people or with some of our shows ahead of run, eight. Um, and so I left with nothing to go to, and I joined this temping agency, and I got a placement working in the customer complaints department at Debenhams, which was amazing, right? Because the reasons that people would phone in to complain yeah. about stuff were some, and some of the letters that people were writing were astonishing, I can, I which I could go off on a mad Yeah. But that, that was a calculated move to go, right, I, I earned more money as a temp. I was like doubled my wage overnight than yeah. I was earning working in this thing I loved. And I did it with the idea that I would be working sensible hours so I could spend my evenings just writing letters to people. So I wrote, I mean, you know, it's an exaggeration to say I wrote 100 letters. I did write in excess of probably about 50 letters targeted to different people at different production companies listing the shows that they made and asking if I could meet with them and I, and I did that in a period of like seven days just churned all these letters out I can remember my mum had bought me stamps because I was like I can't even afford the yeah. stamps I'm like, Bro. I was at the Devon Embassy for ten days and I met, I'd met with a few people and they would give me a bit of time off to go meet people yeah. and so TV were one of the people I'd met Ten days after doing it, that's when I got my first job. But I, there was a grim moment where yeah. I'd sort of gone. I have to go to nothing. Yes. And step out from it. And focus and on it. Because do temping in Debenhams. Yeah. To try and break in and put those letters out there, and you know, ninety percent of the people I wrote to never wrote back. But some of them did, and I remember who they are, and I still know, still see them, and I remember the letter. That's that thing, isn't it? I suppose of if you are working kind of on social hours and you've got no time to kind of think about what your next move is, that even though it was only just like that short period, it kind of at least 
probably confirmed for you that that it was the right move and you were able to have that bit of space. You know, you try and avoid platitudes, but it didn't come to me. Like, no one offered me a job. Yeah. Cold wrote to yeah. you didn't know a lot anyone, of people. Didn't really. know anybody. Yeah. I had no connections in the industry. I came from the Midlands. I didn't know anybody when I, uh, you know, moved down other than contacting Avalon going, looking at the stuff I'd done. And I've done that placement when I was at university, like leafleting on the streets for them to show that I was a worker. Um, and then, yeah, that sort of, the thing from CV was that was just me applying for as much stuff as I possibly could. People have this expectation that it's just going to come to them. We get about 50 people who apply for every job that we advertise here, and there's only one place available. It's tough out there. You've got to put yourself out. Yeah. And you sort of mentioned that you were with um, Europe, so it was a year and a half yeah. initially. So that's, quite, that's, that's, a, that's a good chunk of time, yeah. really, for your, for your first role. So you must have been constantly proving yourself. And, you know, based on what I'm saying, it's like a tenure that long wouldn't happen by accident. You must have really been valuable to them. Can you remember some of the things you did that you think in the position you're at now, like, oh, I can see why they kept me around. I can see, I can see how I made an impact when I was there. I had a, I had a come down, ego come down. Yeah. Because I've been used to being in an office where there were like three or four of them who did yeah. everything. Yeah. So I felt like king of the world. Throw your opinions in at any point. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's the hierarchy too. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, so I had a proper slapdown down Sparky yeah. being a researcher now right because I was producing and directing and sort of feeling like I was this yeah. big dog I was really not um, and didn't know what I was talking about so that was a steep learning curve um, but it was I mean Johan Magnussen was just such an incredible creative force and a, a lot of the people that were working on that show who stayed for because I can't remember I think it was like five seasons we did yeah the ones that stuck it out were just really amazing people to be around because we were churning around so many ideas and it was such a ruthless, hungry ideas churner of a production yeah. to be working on. And it was just very stimulating and dysfunctional as well. I mean, highly competitive, we were all narky with each other. And, yeah. um, and it was sort of like who'd done the best show that week and all that kind of stuff. But when you look back at it, you just go, wow, we just, Learned so much, and made each other better as worked, well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you know that competitiveness was really good. It was really unhealthy and healthy at the same time. The thing I was kind of most proud of on that show was probably not one of the best items that we ever did, but it was just the kind of achievement of doing it. Was I can remember I said to Jan, I really want to do taking an audience member out of the studio and putting them live on stage in a West End musical, like in the show, yeah. the same show. It was like, we're never going to do that. So I said, look, if I can make it happen, will you do it? He was like, fine, if you can make it happen, you can do it. And I remember I got in touch with Grease, the musical, and we ended up managing to get this situation where we got the guy, pulled him out of the audience at the end of the first half of the show. So you'd be down at ITV Studios? Yeah, down at ITV Studios. And then Studios. that was on the old witch. Yeah. Right? Yeah, so it's doable. Very so we dressed him as a pink lady yeah. in the studio, put him on the back of a bike, drove him uh, to the stage door yeah. and pushed him out on stage to be part of the finale of uh, Grease the Musical. All pretty much in like real time, but 
it was just yeah. one of those things where when it goes out on air, you're going, oh my God, like, we, made we just it. took a guy yeah. on the back of a bike and put him in a Western unicorn. It's nuts. That's and nice. silly, but yeah. just joyous. It was just that fun inventiveness. And that was the thing I loved most about the job. It's just, you have these mad ideas and then you get a chance to do it. And then people watch it and it brings them happiness, a moment of happiness in this yeah. mad world. And using that sort of muscle over, the, over that sort of period you were there, like developing ideas all the time, you know, sheer sort of quantity, is that when you sort of realised sort of developing ideas and, and bringing things to life is, is something I sort of love and I'm pretty decent at? Oh, God. Uh, well, when we knew that it was going to come to an end, loads of people went off, obviously, to different shows. Rightly or wrongly, the show that I really wanted to work on was Des and Mel. So, and I think it was because it was the only other five days a week type yeah. show. I just, yeah. I really loved chat shows. I really loved that. So that's mid afternoon, was it? Mid afternoon, yeah. In his mid 70s. And um, so I, I wrote to the guy who ran the series at the time. Could you tell us now what, what is a kind of Des and Mel type idea? And we, were, we were trying to bring more. I've been like, brought in to try and do more sort of mischief and I guess sort of yeah. try and do different stuff and then where, where it kind of spilled out from there was um, Paul O'Grady would do the fill-in weeks when Des would have a holiday ah. and after that because he rated really well yeah. ITV gave him his own series and I ended up going to work on that so we launched the Paul O'Grady show and I just really loved that churn of ideas and, and a friend I'd met when we were on Big Red Norton we stayed in touch and we developing ideas um, and pitching them to various people and we met with um, a guy called David Liverman who had set up 43 Media which was this like, brand new super indie at the time so we went to go and work there um, like developing ideas centrally and we got a couple of things away and then David asked us if we'd join Lion TV and then that's how I moved into Lion Television and then started combining doing development with producing shows stayed there for I think of nearly five years okay um, yeah worked with Adam Wood and Matt Steiner um, who went on to do um, release the hounds um, yeah. and they sort of, sort of set up their own indie like they're, they're really amazing guys and they were just it was great working to them and, and learning from them before they went and ran off when you know when you sort of look back when you know you, you don't necessarily like moving around for the sake of it when for you have been the moments when you've realised right now, now, now is time for a change? When have those kind of crossroads moments made themselves obvious to you? So, I've moved once in 12 years. So I'm like... That's got to be a record I don't in think, the industry. I don't think I... Uh, because, don't, yeah. But the thing is, it's there are people who move around like every two years, which is kind of like a bit of a joke. There are people in the industry who are really funny because they've spent more time on gardening leave than they have actually doing any work in like the last three yeah, years. Yeah, I mean, that's a great scam. Which is like, if you can <laughs> yeah. pull that off, yeah, that's yeah. amazing, right? Um, and the, but there are people who, like, it, it's kind of a bit of a joke that they're yeah. always, within two years, moving on to the next thing. And I, I don't know. I, I don't know if it's my upbringing. I don't know if it's my uh, insecurity. Um, I, I really always like that idea of bedding in somewhere and um, being part of a culture and, and informing that culture yeah. and 
I stayed at Lyme for about five years and I can remember when I had the opportunity to join here. I handed in a letter of resignation. I cried because I was so upset about leaving. Cause I, yeah. Lyme is such a lovely company and really great people. And I really enjoyed my time there. And then I joined here in uh, 2011 and I haven't missed out on opportunities. So I joined as like a development producer and then I ended up running entertainment development and then less than three years ago was given the opportunity to set up my own label here. So I don't feel like staying here I've missed out. I feel yeah. like I've achieved more by being part of this place. And I'm really fortunate that the people I work with here are, I mean, they're just great people. I've, I've loved being here. This is my, I've done seven years in December and, and I've done my best work here surrounded by people I really, really enjoy. So what would be better? Where, where am I going to go? Yeah, when you talk about the progression, you sort of detail just in the time that you've been here, it's like, well, that's what you'd want, you know, the opportunity to kind of run that department and then to actually sort of set up your own label is, is enormously exciting. That's something that wouldn't necessarily be offered to someone who didn't know the organisation well. In terms of that, that feeling, so we sort of skipped ahead a little bit, but... When did you first feel, and given what your first sort of proper job in telly was, it might have been that, but when did you first feel like, I am, I am working in telly, this is for me, and everything I thought about it is right, and this is, this is where the rest of my career is going to be? God, that, that was the uh, Graham Norton. Yeah. That was because the, the, pe- the people, that was, Graham Stewart and Ewan Magnuson were just amazing. And also, I was so spoiled with, working for a show with Graham Norton because he would come into the office every day and he knew everybody's name and he was so gracious and when stuff didn't go right the culture and the way that it would all be discussed was we didn't get that right what can we learn from that how can we make that better Yeah. and of course I was really spoiled because I didn't know at the time that someone like him was so talented and gracious and like, lovely to be part of we cared and invested so much in the show and in him as part of that because of the way he yeah. treated us I've since worked with some absolute <laughs> shockers yeah. and you know, I've worked on a show where there was a the host that was so horrific you're like I really hope this item fucks up like <laughs> yeah. live on air just so that they look stupid because they were so horrible to um, and so I was really spoiled with um, working on that show because it was such a happy, fantastic, stimulating ex- ex- like environment. And I can remember one of, do you know what, we did this one thing where we had Sylvester Stallone's mum came on the show. I'm going to tell this story. This is Dude, this is good. Jack, you know, Jackie, Jackie Stallone. Jackie Stallone came on. And she claimed that she could read people's fortunes from their buttocks, right? Segment goal. I'm going to rely on this anecdote only ever being heard by about three people on this podcast. They, they went, let's photocopy someone's arse on a photocopying machine and fax it live on the show through to Jackie and she's going to do a reading. Yeah. So everyone looked at me and went, like, Neil will do it. Which was right because I'm yeah. sort of knob that with a minimal amount of flattery will say yes to anything. Yeah. So I photocopied my arse. Now, I've never seen my arse because... Yeah, the, how, well, yeah, because of how where do it is. You? Yeah. Yeah. 
turns out it's quite hairy, right? <laughs> and this is how you find out. So, so when they faxed it through, she thought it was a vagina. That's that. That is the end of that anecdote. Did that get broadcast? That was broadcast. That was broadcast. She wow. actually said on air, "Is this a vagina?" And they were like, "No, it's definitely an ass." Wow. What, and that what? was my contribution to <laughs> B. Graham Norman. Wow. That even by the, the standards of that show, that's quite. Um, that's maybe I'm blushing. And I tipped my mum and dad off that the show was yeah. Good, so they were thrilled. So did you have like a very short window to ring them up and say it's not on? Don't worry about it. <laughs> I mean, the horror my parents went through with yeah. some of the stuff that we did on that show. <laughs> but, um, yeah. And what uh, what TV programme do you say you've been most proud about being involved in? The show I'm most proud of is uh, Crystal Men. It's been six and a half years trying to bring this show back. and um, But that's the kind of guardian you'd want for a show like that. Someone who does care about it and does think about it and sounds like sort of eat, sleep and, and drink it a little bit. Yeah. Um, I sense it could almost be its own separate episode, so I won't drill you too much for, for, for Crystal Maze uh, stuff. But, I mean, obviously, it's fantastic to have it back. And, I mean, in one person's opinion, like, you've done that great job of bringing something back and making it feel faithful and fresh. But is that something that you just sort of worked out organically by instinct, or at the beginning were you very much, these are the, these are the non-negotiable pieces of what makes... The crystal maze, the crystal maze, and here are the things we can sort of play with it with a more organic experience. It's very much a team effort, and um, I think sometimes when people try and take credit for things, so <laughs> you know, where you see those sort of articles in broadcast magazines, yeah, and dudes taking full credit for creating something that was actually a format that someone got shit. Yeah, I feel like I feel like Strictly is quite big one for that. I feel like. About 50, 50 people invented Strictly. More people claim to have invented Strictly than have actually watched the show. Yeah. I think. Uh, same with Weakest Link as well. That's another one. Yes. Um, but I, I think uh, coming at it from someone who was just a super fan of it and had spent so long trying to get it away, the most important thing was bringing in uh, a team of people who cared about the show as much as, as we did. There are some people who had just such a significant impact on it. So uh, James Dillon created the original maze and one of the first things we did was get him to come in and ask him if he would rebuild the maze from scratch and it was such an important thing to have him as part of it because he'd been and seen it all so he knew all the pitfalls and then we had this amazing games team led by Hannah Key. and the first thing when she came in was she cut this timeline of every single game that had ever been on screen for all six series Firstly by zone and then by game type. So we'd watch all the Aztec games yeah. by skill and then by mystery. She analysed all the games and then her thing was, we're not going to repeat a single game. We're going to learn what the DNA of those games are and we'll do a nod to the past because there's only yeah. so many mechanics out there. But as much as possible, it's going to all be new. And that was part of the spirit of the original series is that they never repeated games across the series. They always did new stuff. And, and that's credit to her and that team that they really pushed forward the kind of um, Richard Iowali was, uh, that was uh, as an absolutely channel four as well, identifying very early on who we wanted to have a distinctive voice for the show because having some kind of in a, in a normal suit game show host type person would have killed the show and he's got such a unique character and getting him involved early, early on helped us set the tone to how we wanted to approach it. So 
made it easier when we were having the tortured conversations about do you bring back Mumsy literally or yeah. do you bring back the spirit of Mumsy but reimagine it in a different way and then there are things where you have to make there are lots of little things that I don't think people really appreciate so some people complain about the fact that um, transitions between zones aren't the same as they were so back when the show was originally on there were two ad breaks in the commercial hour yeah. and the shows were like 50, <laughs> 55 minutes yeah. and so a transition a move from one zone to the next would come in the middle of a part yeah. and it would be like this unbroken thing so we've got three ad breaks it makes logistical sense to put the bit where people aren't playing a game over yeah. the ad break so we have our transitions split over the ad breaks and people are like they're not doing any transitions in the same way as it no, we're not, no. Yeah. And maybe then, you could film them and release them as, as, yeah, as, as online content. And then it's like other things as well that people have to don't, you know, it's right that viewers don't have to consider it, but sometimes people who are a little bit unfair sort of don't appreciate the bigger picture of, you know, the, when, the, when the maze was originally built, you would move from one zone to the next in exactly the same way in every show. You just yeah. start in a different zone. You'd always go from one zone to the, to the yeah. ne next zone. And that's because 26 years ago, you didn't have to worry about diversity and representing people of disability uh, who maybe can't climb a wall or yeah. uh, run up a ladder. Um, so w we did it in a way where the maze is open to everybody. And to do that means you have to approach transitions in a different way to make it more fluid. Because yeah. what you don't want to have is, oh, that's the route that you go down if you are disabled but all yeah. the normal people get to go a different way that's yeah. absolutely totally wrong so you do it in a way where you go one week we'll do it this way one week we'll do it the next way and then some people are going but it's not the same every week it's not the exact <laughs> literal same thing and you go oh is our time travelling game show mixing it up slightly yeah sorry to <laughs> offend you um, so there are those things that you agonise over and you pour over in an overly sensitive way when someone writes a comment on Twitter um, can you remember how you felt the first day you were on set when it was complete? There's a there's a photo of me sat in the hatch at the top of the wall on Aztec Zone, looking like a kid in a candy shop, just looking at this maze that Jane Dillon took. I think for all of us who were working on the show, we loved that show so much. Um, you know, I was 12 years old when the show first aired, and I can remember coming loving it and um, so we just put so much into trying to do the best and not letting anybody down who loved the show originally but also which was equally important that we were kids when we watched the show originally and if we only satisfied the 30 to 40 year olds who are obsessively protective of their heritage yeah. and, and at the same time alienated young people we've done a massive disservice to what that show is the spirit of the show yeah. and what's so lovely is we're like doubling the audience for 4 to 15 year olds like kids I just had an email today from this 4 year old that um, his mum had transcribed writing yeah. to us just saying how much you have to show would we do a version with kids and it's just like that's what you want to be doing yeah because so, then that kind of gives it that extra life and you know maybe there's a 12 year old Neil who'll bring it back in years to come maybe or have that same kind of impact that's a lovely yeah.
oh, that's, that's fantastic. So obviously when you're working on stuff, you, you care deeply, it's very, very important to you. What sorts of TV do you watch in your own time as a punter for fun? What is your sort of TV diet like that you enjoy watching? So I watch a lot of shows for work rather than fun because part of my job is to, Get to know be aware of shows. So there's shows that are tortuous to sit through. <laughs> but you need to have a but, view on But I have to watch yeah. them, be aware of them. Um, so yeah, gosh, I mean, I love entertainment and entertainment's the genre that I'm in, so I watch a lot yeah. of entertainment. So if anything's new out, you're on it, you'll be checking it yeah. out. And then, but then, but then that's kind of work. So you're yeah. watching it in a way where you're analysing it, working out what worked from it, what doesn't. The shows I love are the ones where it kind of washes over you. So um, I, I love watching Ninja Warrior with my son. Um, I just, I, yeah. it's such a fun show, and you know, it's not changing the world, but it's 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 really well made and. I love the characters that they put on it and there's that mix of slapstick with just jaw-dropping achievement and I love watching shows where I'm watching them with the kids so my kids obviously love Strictly Come Dancing um, and X Factor and The Voice and it's great having those shared experiences as a parent I'm watching those shows with my kids and then the shows that I watch to sort of wind down tend to be scripted stuff with wife shared viewing on Netflix yeah. so we're watching Ozark at the moment good isn't it <sighs> yeah yeah how far in are you uh, seven episodes in yeah it's good my theory is not a theory but like Jason Bateman's brilliant I'm, I'm very much I feel like they sort of like buried the fact he was in it when you saw it on Netflix it wasn't clear I was like well, if you told me it was Jason Bateman more than I would have watched it a lot sooner but the idea that essentially he is Michael Bluth but in this much more intense, non-comedic situation, which somehow makes bits that aren't supposed to be funny quite funny. There's a lot of humour in it still, despite yeah, being quite bleak. Some of the one-liners are yeah. cracking. So we got into um, a Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, which yes. is magnificent. Just absolutely, it's a really special show. Brooklyn Nine-Nine as well, just fantastic. And then Ozark we're on to at the moment. And at some point we will go into Better Call Saul, but we needed a break from Breaking Bad because it was just so intense. It is. It's a great world. It's, a, it's, a, it's an intense place to spend a lot of time. Yeah. And I guess we could round off with what television programme do you wish you'd come up with? Big Breakfast. The one thing that I think has like fo followed me throughout um, my uh, career in TV is that the Big Breakfast was as a viewer, such a fantastic show to, to watch. It was such a joyous space to spend the morning. And so much fun, so inventive. And the thing that I've seen through my career is that people who are that bit older, who you really look up to in the industry, have all worked on Big Breakfast. You know, Peter Usher, who I work with, worked on it, and some amazing people worked on it. And they learned so much on that show. And that's a show that I think we haven't got enough of in the industry. It's, shows that you can cut your teeth on yeah you know that is a kind of battery line to nurture the next talent because the thing with like v graham norton was there were a load of us who were kind of yeah now staggering our way up the greasy yeah. pole <laughs> trying to make a career who learned a lot on a show like that that was very uh, ideas hungry and inventive and gave you room to breathe and i think we're, we're missing shows like that and, and 
Big Breakfast was such a fantastic show. Big Brother as well. Um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a show where some of the best people who work on TV and entertainment have been working on those shows. So other shows, Pointless. Yes. Just a perfect quiz. So simple and uh, endlessly entertaining. Loved Wipeout. Wish I could have. You know, Wipeout is such fun. Because that's the sort of show that you want to make and also have a go on. And just one thing we will just finish off with. If anyone's looking to get into development, what would your sort of top tips be? I think it's really healthy to work on shows first so that you have an idea of the practicalities and the limitations of production. Because I've done sort of four or five years of working on intense production before I sort of dabbled with development. And it informed the kind of shows yeah. that I was developing. And then also, <laughs> because I've worked aware, I then have to make the shows I was pitching. <laughs> it's like, yeah, that, because yeah. there are some places where you develop shows and then you pass them over yeah. to someone else to make. But I've had the misfortune of having to be responsible <laughs> for, like, for your own ideas. All right, smart ups, can I make that yeah. happen then? Oh, it's much more <laughs> expensive than I thought it was. Um, gosh, I guess that thing of. Um, Right, if you want to do development, you've got to prove that you're creative. So, um, you know, come up with ideas and present them in an inventive way. If you're cold calling to somebody to go, I'd love to work in development, yeah. you've got to attract people's attention because there's so many people out there who want those gigs. So a wider point I'd make, which I've, I've noticed from application processes that we go through is, I've seen a lot of people apply for jobs where when you post an ad, talking about the job and the opportunity, they write a note that basically says, um, this is great for me. This, <laughs> no, this, is, um, this is exactly what I'm looking for. This has come along exactly the right time. This for, uh, is the sort of thing that's going to really help my career. And I, the one thing I would say, if you're communicating <laughs> with anybody for a job, whether it's cold calling or whether it's applying for something, yeah. f frame it within the context of, if I'm offering someone a job, it's not to do them a favour. Yeah. Right? I'm not. It's not like a charity. I'm, yeah. I need someone to come and do some work and add value to what we're trying to do. I want you to take on some of the heavy lifting and responsibility and the pressure, yeah. and help us be more successful. So when you're applying for a job, it's not about you. It's yeah. about the person that is offering you the job. And the message that you should be sending across is. This is a fantastic opportunity, and I think I'd be able to do some amazing things for you. And this is the this is what I can do. These are the skills I have, and this is how I think I can make a difference. So to paraphrase John F. Kennedy, ask not what Neil can do for you, but what you can do for Neil. If you are applying for a job with Neil, or indeed anyone. Yeah, yeah. Yes. I mean, that sounds so much better than the ramble that I just came out with. But I think that's really, yeah, that's really important. I think that's good advice for anyone for any job. Um, and, and a fantastic note to end on. Thank you very much, Neil.